Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Kenneth Moss on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Jewish Renaissance in the Russian Revolution. You have a culture, right? Everybody has a culture. Every nation has a culture. But where do we get this idea of culture? Where does it come from? If you look at the OED, you find a very interesting thing, and that is that the idea of culture as a unique set of characteristics that defines a particular nation really isn't very old at all. In fact, it's no older than the notion of nation itself. That is, it was the child of the 19th century. And in the 19th century, every nation went about trying to figure out what its culture would be. This was relatively uncomplicated for some nations, but for other nations, it was much more difficult, and the Jews would be the primary example. They were spread out all over the place. They spoke many languages, and the faith which united them was not united itself. So when Jewish intellectuals decided in the 19th and early 20th century that there would be a Jewish nation, they had to figure out what its culture would be, because they believed there could be such a culture. In this book, Kenneth does a terrific job of explaining the way they tried to do that in the Eastern European contexts, particularly in Ukraine and Russia and Poland uh, after the Russian Revolution, or should I say after the two Russian Revolutions. I really enjoyed talking to Kenneth today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Ken. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? Uh, fine, thank you. Yourself? Uh, I'm very well. Uh, you know, as I told you in the pre-interview, we always start by talking about the weather, and uh, it was, I think, three degrees here today when I took my son to daycare. What, what's it like oh, there? And you're in Baltimore, is that right? Yeah, I'm in Baltimore. I was going to complain about the weather, but I think you you trumped me. Yeah, uh, it's cold. It's not it's not as cold as Petersburg during uh, the winter of 1917. No, no. or or a, as where you are right now. No, but, no, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's cold. cold. It's brisk. It's brisk. You know, but yeah, but I always uh, think of what the Swedes say that there is no bad weather. There's just bad clothes. So that just makes sense. So <laughs> or, 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 right, or bad alcohol. Bad alcohol, yeah. In their case. So anyway, I should tell our listeners that we have Ken Moss on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Jewish Renaissance in the Russian Revolution. This book uh, made me think. Not every book does. And actually, it's kind of hard to get me to think at my age So because I've decided everything. I, I knew everything when I was about 18, and now that I'm you know in, in middle age, I, I know everything again. So Ken's book made me think about a couple of things, and particularly about the idea of culture, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But Ken, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Well, I teach Jewish history, modern Jewish history at Johns Hopkins. Uh, this is now my seventh year. Uh, hopefully not my last, but that's what the Hopkins <laughs> to define. Um, and uh, uh, I trained at Stanford with Steve Zipperstein and Aaron Rodrigue and also Amir Viner as a, and, and Terry Emmons and Nancy Coleman and people who do Russian work there, but primarily in Jewish history. And before that, I did my undergraduate at, uh, at Rutgers. Uh, and at that point, I really wasn't doing Jewish history per se. I, was, I, I did a broad, uh, fairly broad uh, curriculum in, in, in modern Europe and in various forms of social theory. So I guess that's the 
fold backwards, that's the that's the framework out of which this research has emerged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Central Jersey, Central Jersey. Uh, in Metuchen. Uh-huh. Metuchen? Um, no way. Metuchen. Metuchen. Yeah. Do you know Metuchen? Well, no. It's just that uh, we had um, somebody on the show two weeks ago who was from Metuchen. Um, and uh, my – Julian Zellweger, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. He, well, yes, absolutely. I mean uh, – yeah, You guys I, are like I, the Metuchen I, cohort. That's right. And I'm the second most famous scholar from Metuchen. From Metuchen. That's right. Well, I don't know. You know you're doing pretty well. And then my first uh, – I had a girlfriend in, um, in college who was from Metuchen. Are you so, kidding? No, I did. That's absolutely right. The listeners are now rolling their eyes. What are these guys talking about? I know they are, but that's okay. I mean, we're we're allowed this this kind of thing. You know, when I, it was I, when I was uh, in, you know, I was from I'm from the Midwest, and so when I uh, had this girlfriend from Metuchen, I thought all of New Jersey was Metuchen. I thought it was the most famous city in New Jersey. So well, we 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 apparently the, the official motto of the town is that it's the brainy borough. The brainy borough. <laughs> I like it. Well, her father her father was actually a professor, so it is the brainy oh. borough. Well, there you go. Well, it's, it's near Rutgers. It's on the main train right. line between between Princeton and New York. So I think it has a nice kind of bedroom community, commuter feel. It's a nice town. Right. Well, go yeah. go Metuchen. So um, that, that's that's great. And so then you went on to Rutgers, which is right down the train track, and yeah, and, and then, the track. Uh, and then into history. And you say you really hadn't been in, in interested in sort of uh, Jewish history prior to sort of your no, career. No, I, forgive me. I was I was interested. In fact, before I went to between my year my my final high school year in Metuchen and my my first college year down the road from it, I spent a year in Israel, oh, in did Jerusalem, uh-huh. working quite intensively on Hebrew. And, uh-huh. and I already by the time I finished high school, I had some sense that I wanted to work broadly speaking in in the academy and around some aspect of Jewish modernity. Uh-huh. But I think I went into college and my year in Israel, imagining that I'd go into political science, yeah. international relations. I'd you know I'd solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. But once that resolved itself, you know, in, in the early 90s, I... That didn't yeah, work out. I, I, so I came to Rutgers already fairly fluent in Hebrew, which I hadn't been before, yeah. and I really had devoted the year to studying Hebrew. But I, yeah. came, I came in not really knowing what I wanted to do, and I, start, I, took, I, did, I did an IR class. Uh-huh. Um, but I also took a class, actually a Holocaust history class, with Omar Bartov, who was oh, at yeah. that time at Rutgers, oh, before yeah. he left for, for, um, for, uh, for Brown, uh-huh. and realized I'd rather be a historian. Uh-huh. And then I suppose by the time I was a sophomore, I knew I wanted to do Jewish history, uh-huh. and, um, yeah. and for which I have to thank, I suppose in a strange way, uh, Hannah Arendt. I remember reading oh, yeah. some of her essays sure. selected in the Jewish Pariah and finding yeah. that really quite compelling. Yeah, well, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a rich and fascinating history. I was thinking about it last night. I think I've done about 90 – this is, I think, our 93rd or 94th interview on the show, and – I think a good fifth of them have been with people that do Jewish history because, you know, the Jews have been at the, the center of a lot of really interesting things and many bad ones and many good ones in the 20th century. So it's, right. it's a really uh, rich vein. And I also just uh, remarked upon a kind of a strange irony, and that is that you know, there's – for, for, for the listeners, um, as far as I know, the Israeli government will um, uh, pay you to go learn Hebrew. That they, there are all kinds of programs that you can go. I, I, I wasn't given a cent. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Bastards. Uh, I mean, but, but certainly the, the, the Hebrew program I was in, you know, I don't, I mean, it's government, it, it, it has some government in the sense it was at a public university, it's the yeah. University of Jerusalem. And, uh-huh. and until recently, all, all universities were broadly speaking public universities yeah. in Israel to a greater degree than they in the U.S. But, but certainly I, I had language training there that I've, I've just never seen equaled. Yeah. And I, and I think if the comparison might be some of the some of the kind of intensive and really quite 
passionate language training, you can still get in Eastern Europe or yeah, Russia. Right? And they, no. These were people deeply devoted to the language yeah. Yeah. No, uh, they, in they a way are. that now I recognize as a kind of cultural nationalism that I've tried to make sense of in this book. Well, they did, uh, something, got, you know, they did something amazing. They revived a dead language. I mean, that, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a trick. It's an unparalleled trick. Um, yeah, no, it's and, you know, the, the irony is, is that, you know, there's uh, one other uh, group of people I know who will pay, uh, usually pay for people to learn their language, and that is Germans. Germans paid me huh. to go to, to Germany to learn German. Well, they're worried about German dying, you know. Which is very funny. Yeah. Well, you know, Germans speak English, so it's um, so it, yeah. That is kind of an interesting irony. So, um, tell us how you came to write this particular book. Well, I came into graduate school knowing that I wanted to work uh, on some aspect of the interface between Jewish culture, whatever that might mean, and Jewish politics in Eastern Europe. And by the time I finished college, I not only had Hebrew but I had Yiddish pretty fluently. And so I knew I wanted to work on the cultural world of East European Jewry and, 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 and you know, in, in tandem with and in relation to uh, the, the political life, uh, particularly the political world shaped by nationalism and socialism that's, mm-hmm. that's been so beautifully laid out in, in the late Jonathan Frankel's Prophecy and Politics, mm-hmm. which is really probably the, the book that most influenced my conception going in mm-hmm. to, to this project. When when I got to Stanford, I, my first research work was actually on I was on similar topics, but a little later in, in interwar um, uh, Eastern Europe, particularly in, in, in the newly independent Lithuania, and and I I, I was I be, I wrote a first paper that was really about the 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 the, the interface between a, very, a particular version of Jewish diaspora nationalism on the one hand and Yiddishism, the idea that this new that a new Jewish culture was to be created in the Yiddish vernacular mm-hmm. language of East European Jewry on the other. But as I was working on that project, I started to see some things I couldn't really account for. So one of the things I saw was a, an almost obsessive concern on the part of the figures I was studying to erect boundaries or to, to, to create space between their political institutions, their political party on the one hand, and the cultural institutions, in this case a school system, that mm-hmm. they were trying to set up. And I, they, they, they were far from assuming the natural... Um, uh, fit between their political endeavor and their cultural endeavor, they seemed obsessed with insisting on and institutionalizing a difference between what they called culture and what they called politics. That led me to a second research paper, and at Stanford we did two, two sort of MA-style research papers instead of a single MA thesis, that, that looked at the first Yiddish literary journal that specifically cast itself as a journal solely for the arts. It was published in 1908 in what's now Vilnius, in Vilna. And um, and there, too, the, the concern of the editors who came from different and even opposed political parties that had been at, at loggerheads during 1905 was to insist on some fundamental difference between national culture and literary culture as an undertaking and politics, which they also embraced. They were not sort of Parnassian. They didn't say, well, politics is irrelevant. On the contrary, they were all active members of political parties. But they were obsessed with this difference. And so that was one thing I noticed in these early papers. And the second thing I noticed was that there was a – Beyond sort of nationalist intellectuals I had naturally taken as my focus, there was a whole universe of writers and artists, of literary intellectuals, calling literati, creative, creative intelligentsia, who were also very much part of this world, but were generally not written about by historians. They were sort of left to literary historians, as though there was, you know, even though empirically they were all one universe of, uh, of actors in dialogue with each other, with an over with overlapping institutions and yet also different concerns mm-hmm. and, and these literary intellectuals clearly were figures I had to make sense of if I was going to make sense of this undertaking of a national culture so so out of those two 
experience of empirical lack on my part, and then building makes sense of these two kinds of phenomena. I ultimately decided I needed to rethink what culture meant to the Jewish nationalist intelligentsia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about the history of the uh, the idea of culture and what particular challenges these Jewish intellectuals um, faced in the late 19th century as everybody seemed to be grouping up in nations and designing national cultures for themselves. Canons right. were being written and that kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, I mean, uh, it's almost we could begin from the 18th century, the late 19th century. But, but you know, certainly the empirical nub would be that sometime in the 1880s and 1890s, growing, sort of small but growing numbers of Jewish you know, kids, young people, primarily from the borderlands of the Russian Empire, places that are now Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, though also Petersburg played an important role in this. But, but, but primarily from the borderlands, you, you see these young figures, many of them from the Jewish um, middle class and scholarly elite who had some kind of intensive religious education in Hebrew language, well, in, in, the Hebrew, in Hebrew texts, uh, um, so they knew Yiddish and Hebrew as well as some Polish, some Russian, depends, that you start to see these circles um, articulating and trying to produce notions that converge ultimately on an idea of Jewish culture. So they, they start talking about the importance of creating a modern Hebrew and then belatedly uh, Yiddish literature. Um, uh, and, and, and they tie this to a nationalism that many of them embraced, in most cases, especially early on, Zionism. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're talking about the turn of the century, you have a, 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 a much more complicated family of Jewish political nationalism, some of which are Zionists. They imagine a re-territorialization and a recentering in Palestine or in Eretz Israel, right? Some are territorialists. They say it doesn't have to be the land of Israel. It can be anywhere or maybe it should be somewhere else. Some are anti-territorialist and diasporist in the sense that they imagine some sort of reconstruction of the region uh, as a multi-ethnic sort of EU of the lettres kind of region in which every <laughs> national group will have its own cultural and linguistic institutions and self-determination without necessarily political statehood. But they're all nationalists one way or the other. They imagine the Jews as a nation. And at the same time, they commit themselves uh, to creating a, uh, what they increasingly come to call a Jewish culture. Uh, um, now, there are deeper roots to this in the sense that well before the 1880s, there was a, 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 what was called the Haskalah movement mm-hmm. or a Jewish Enlightenment movement in Eastern Europe um, and, and associated forms of, of discourse and behavior that all, for instance, made a place for uh, uh, the arts and aesthetic literature in some sort of renovation of Jewish life. But these earlier formations tended to say that this is going to be supplementary. Jews will be good Russians and part of the mainstream Russian imperial culture, mm-hmm. and they will also cultivate a renovated and purified and expanded uh, Jewish uh, uh, um, culture as a supplement to that that will be both a renovated religious culture, cleansed of what they saw as ridiculous mystical accretion, mm-hmm. uh, and it will make some place for, for letters, you know, arts and letters, mm-hmm. and the kind of classical mode. By the 1890s, this, in, in my view, this starts to, transform, to, 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 to transmogrify into a much more robust vision of a separate, freestanding Jewish national culture that would be parallel to and, and thus separate from and in competition with every other so-called national culture. And they have an idealized vision of what national cultures are, but they mean there'll be a Jewish culture as there is a Russian culture, a Polish culture, a German culture, uh-huh. uh, an English culture, and so forth. Uh-huh. 
And how, how did they go about uh, setting up this culture? I mean, one thing I guess I want to dwell on just a little bit before you answer that question is the tremendous variety of different perspectives on this question. I think that especially Americans uh, – well, let me just say especially me um, being – from the Midwest, and you know, there, there obviously were. I, I knew a little bit about Judaism. My one of my best friends was Rob Cohen, and so on and so forth. And I grew up around the block from a, a, a synagogue. But uh, there, there was one kind of Jewish person, and that, that was a Jewish person, just like there was one kind of Baptist and one kind of Lutheran, and that's pretty much what it was. But right. there was tremendous variety within this group. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, you have a little bit in terms of Yiddishism and Hebraism and that kind of stuff, but there really was. Uh, these people were – I was going to say they were kind of at each other's throats, but they – they, 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 Very they, true. Yeah, they were not – they were not really – you know, they were not a, a kind of a – this was not a, a wonderful chorus of a united religious or ethno-religious group. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about no, their variety. Quite the contrary. And I'd say there's a couple forms of variety to keep in mind. So on the one hand, one of the things that is worth remembering about these people is that most – the, the large majority of the roughly roughly six million Jews in, let's say, Russia, Poland, and Eastern Europe, short of Central Europe, spoke, and many could read Yiddish. So, they, so on the one hand, they were like they were fairly typical in the sense they were a, a group defined by a variety of objectively visible factors that were all mutually reinforcing. Now, obviously, this is not true of everybody, and it's less true all the time because this is all, they're also dynamically speaking, processes of assimilation, of Russification, I'll get that in a second. But you know, broadly speaking, if you were to go to some you know, if you go to the Berdichev, right, in what's, mm-hmm. in what's now Ukraine, you would you you would have been in a town that was uh, dominated by people who for whom religion, language and and dress and um, endogamy were all mutually reinforcing and mm-hmm. all self evidently part of the same package of Jewishness. So, mm-hmm. you know, in that sense they there was a particular kind of 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 crumbling ethno-linguistic and ethno-religious givenness about Jewishness that certainly is not true of, in the U.S. in the 20th century. In mm-hmm. the U.S., the givenness is, is is religious in a much in that much narrower sense, mm-hmm. or not not unimportant, but more defined sense that religion means something in the U.S. So on the one hand, you can, in some historiography, would present them as a, a typical ethno-cultural group set apart in the you know en masse from other such typical ethnocultural groups and of course class also reinforces this because they're an urban group mm-hmm. in a world where that's ra- that, that's a rather distinctively Jewish profile except in certain parts of Poland that said the flip side as you said is that that uh, first of all this is a East European Jewry is undergoing also the 19th century and certainly in a kind of galloping forward anyway by the end of the 19th century they're undergoing tremendous uh, sociocultural transformation rapid transformation rapid transformation in political identity. Many are learning and becoming more comfortable with Russian uh, and the whole world of Russian culture, some metropolitan culture that's emerging in mm-hmm. Russia's cities, in Russia's sort of the, the world of commerce and business that sort of that sits uncomfortably atop uh, the so largely peasant, peasant empire. Mm-hmm. And um, the same is happening in, 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 in more locally in Congress Poland around Polish, so the, you know, the substantial population of Jews in Warsaw who are at home in Polish, think in Polish, speak in Polish, maybe practice Judaism in the way that some American Jews are at home in English mm-hmm. and American culture and practice. So, so absolutely, there's tremendous internal sociocultural divergence, and this in turn maps onto tremendous, um, as you said, tr- tremendous conflict. Uh, so on the one hand, one f- group that I really don't at all deal with in this book, but are very much the one, one set of opponents for the people I deal with, is, is, is the world of by no means exhausted 
ultra Jewish uh, ultra orthodoxy and yeah. Pietistic religion. Mm-hmm. Um, um, some of the figures I study came out of that world and broke with it. Although that's a little bit that's itself has become a myth. Not everybody I study. I mean, that world's presence is actually something historians are now debating. To what degree, by say 1900, would any Jewish kid growing up in the Pale of Settlement or in the you know in the, in the Russian Empire really encounter a robust uh, Orthodox religiosity as a given? I actually think less so than you might think. Mm-hmm. Certainly less so than the 1880s. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the figures I study simply thought they just they really seemed to believe that Orthodoxy was a dead was just dead in the water. It turns mm-hmm. out historically they're wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it has a tremendous resurgence that's happening even today, yeah. especially in both the U.S. and Israel. But yeah. for them, this was a fossil um, uh, and one that they didn't feel particularly threatening by the 1900s. And mm-hmm. As opposed to the sort of early 19th century, when to, when to imagine a new Jewish culture was already to put yourself at odds with a robust uh, 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 Orthodox establishment uh, that meant a lot to most Jews. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there's a, there's a world of Orthodoxy, there's a world of assimilation and even assimilationism, and it's and 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 in a broader sense of the world of of kind of um I don't know a a, a, a mishmash culture uh, of many different languages uh, the popular boulevard culture that flourishes in Yiddish is the same as the one that flourishes in Polish and English you know uh, uh, penny penny dreadfuls and shun mm-hmm. and you know kind of a blue book literature and and uh, um, uh, you know uh, boulevard theater and melodramas and, and and popular press all of these things are happening and in some sense it's against all of this that the figures I'm studying define some idea of a new Jewish culture, a high culture for a putative Jewish nation that they're going to make and remake. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And um, I, I, so now we can go on to the challenges that they faced. Uh, you, you know, I mean, I know from the imperial uh, Russian context, which I've studied, they, they weren't terribly excited about nationalisms of any sort. Uh, and I imagine they were particularly down on any kind of Jewish nationalism. What sort of challenges did these uh, these culture makers um, uh, Kulturträger is a word that I kind of want to use. This German right, term. Right. Yeah. The, the, what kind of challenges did they face from the uh, their uh, the, you know they were I guess they were they were subjects of these empires. What sort of uh, challenges did they face in attempting to create institutions and to formulate a, mm-hmm. a unified Jewish culture? Well, that's you know it's a, it's a great question. And let me note sort of parenthetically the reason I choose to set my book very very in a very limited chronological space of 1917 to 1921 is. What, what I think happens in 1970 with the fall of the old regime, to anticipate a little bit, is that really it's the first time you have no constraint whatsoever mm-hmm. on the kinds of institutions these guys can build. So what I see is happening in 1917 is not a break with what this earlier 30 years history, but on the contrary, the, the moment when all these plans that had been not fully quashed by the regime by any means, but had been interfered with in various ways, can suddenly be put into practice. Right, so the lid comes off, so to say. I'm sorry? The lid comes off, so to say. The lid comes off. That's right. Yeah. So what was the lid? I mean, the lid is not. And let me note, there's a, there's some very nice clarification of this in a very in a nice specific institutional way in Jeff Weidlinger's new book. Um, uh, um, uh, on, um, I'm to find the title here, but um, uh, Jewish public culture, which, which looks really at the interrevolutionary moment, 1905 to 1917. Mm-hmm. But, so broadly speaking, before 1905, the state. Um, I mean, as you know, there were the censorship laws that dictated that nothing could be published without pre-approval. After the 19, one of the few gains of the 1905 revolution is that that changes. Then it becomes, then anything becomes subject to um, legal. To, to, you can, you're subject to punishment if you've published something you ought not to have, but you can publish more or less what you want mm-hmm. without too much pre-approval, right? So, 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 but broadly speaking, there's always a censorship apparatus. 
there is real constraint the state puts on um, any efforts to create uh, uh, empire-wide Jewish um, cultural organizations. And, and its, it's concerns are fitful. It, it definitely doesn't like Jewish nationalism any more than it likes anybody else's nationalism. You're quite right. It, it see, I don't think it sees it nearly as dangerous as, say, Polish nationalism. Right? I mean, I think you know, Polish nationalism, the, the, the regime really knows that that's a robust, mm-hmm. territorially dangerous fact, and, and, they, and, they, and they do their best to, 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 to quash it quite, quite unsuccessfully. But, but you know, for instance, uh, as the late John Clear noted, um, he, he went back and researched the, the origins of the state's ban on Yiddish theater. There's a ban on Yiddish theater. He sees it as linked to the ban on Ukrainian theater. There's a moment really quite early in all this when the state says there's not going to be a flourishing Ukrainian theater because Ukrainian is not a real language. They're really little Russians. They're part of it. And mm-hmm. it's not going to be a, a, a flourishing Yiddish theater because why do we need such a thing? It can only, you know, <laughs> it, it, it can only have downsides, right, from the standpoint right. of the state. Um, and, and they also, there's also tremendous, one of the reasons the Yiddish mass press is so, it's really delayed. The first Yiddish daily in the Tsarist Empire is 1903. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's not because there wasn't interest or a market. As soon as, as soon as the 1905 revolution was, Hits and it's, and when it beca- and when the dust settles and there's still these freer um, publishing laws, there's a, a, a just a huge explosion of Yiddish mass press. The second great Yiddish mass daily is, is founded in, in Warsaw in 1908, a third in 1910 in Warsaw, and from then on you have exactly what you'd expect from, you know, five and a half million Yiddish potential Yiddish readers, you know, four and a half million, I don't know how many people actually read, waiting for a press that would address their sort of everyday concerns. So, I'm wondering if I could just break in here really quickly. I'm reminded of my yeah. discussion with Tony Michaels about this. Is it true then that the uh, kind of first Yiddish press was uh, created in the United States? First Yiddish mass press, absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 it far precedes it. Because, and it's, it's, it's absolutely simply, not simply, as Tony points out, it has a lot to do also with the rather extraordinary story of how socialism becomes kind of yeah, the yeah. organizing normative code of American yeah, Jewish is, life. New York yeah. yeah, I should tell our listeners we interviewed Tony Michaels about this, and it is a fascinating story. But, uh, yeah, so y- Yiddishism, or I, I don't know if it was Yiddishism in the United States, but it, uh, it was free of restraint um, due to the First Amendment, and uh, it kind of exploded here before it exploded there. But let's go back to... Um, uh, 1905 and then 1917 and, and the explosion right. of the the uh, was there a Hebrew press also? Yes, there was a Hebrew press before this, and the Hebrew press, press had flourished much earlier. I mean, Hebrew was a much, of course, a, a much smaller readership base, but not tiny. I mean, I think the you know Don Miron, one of the great literary historians of Hebrew, came in various ways to the estimate that by by say 1880 you'd have 100,000. Hebrew readers who could read really? anything in Hebrew. Huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know, I know, you know, I know from my own studies of sort of Western European, early modern Western Europe that uh, Hebrew type was uh, widely available. I think in the 16th century, actually, because yes, because yes, Christians yes. were really interested in it. <laughs> that Greek and Hebrew type, where you know, you, you printing in Hebrew was thought to be a kind of a highbrow thing. Uh, well, and there was, of course, there was also a massive. I mean, all through all through the Mediterranean and Europe, there was a massive yeah. uh, and very early adoption of print by by Jewish printers. So. You know, Hebrew was the language, crudely you can compare it to the importance of Latin in medieval Christendom, but, but maybe more so even because in principle there's no distinction between clerisy and lay yeah. people in Judaism. So yeah. in principle, every Jewish man of sound mind is supposed to be able to read Hebrew text. Now, of course, in practice, the large majority couldn't read much more than, you know, they could make their way say, through the lection, right, some kind of biblical path, they, they, or, and they knew the prayers by heart, and they probably understood them, but... but there was always a fairly well substantial elite in Eastern Europe, and maybe even growing in the 19th century, because there's a huge population explosion in Eastern Europe during the 19th century. Um, Actually, I was going to say, when I was growing up, uh, my friend Scott Fine, he got to go to Hebrew school, and I asked my mom why I didn't get to go. 
It just doesn't <laughs> seem fair to me, you know? Like, he gets to go to the school, and I don't get to go. What's the deal? So I, tell you, so I can't read Hebrew. I can't read Hebrew school. He can't. You know, I can't. So. Um, but, but anyway, so there was, a, there, was a, there, was a, there was an elite hungry for writing in Hebrew, and once you get parts of that elite that in, sort of in, in various in the name of various kinds of Enlightenment ideals in the 19th century, are looking for something beyond the classical texts and commentaries on those texts, you get a flourishing Hebrew press. So already by the 1860s, you have a flourishing Hebrew press in the Russian Empire mm-hmm. in various centers. Um, uh, in, 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 and by the end, by the 1880s, it's very much centered in it, publishing and centered in Warsaw for economic reasons. Mm-hmm. But you have a much you have a robust Hebrew language culture um, long before you have any such thing in Yiddish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But by is the it, turn of the century, they're both they're both up and running. Uh-huh. Has anybody written? This is a sort of an aside. Again, it comes from my background as early modernist. Has anybody written a good uh, sort of a, a largish book about Vilnius as the kind of uh, Jerusalem of Eastern Europe? Because an extraordinarily large Jewish population, large the earliest Jewish press that I know of. And well, it's, it, you know, Vilnius is a funny place. It does have a, one of the one of the important early Hebrew papers is there. It's actually not not a huge population. It's not. It's dwarfed by the Jewish population of Warsaw yeah. by the end of the century. No, maybe I'm thinking um, of the 16th and 17th centuries. Then I. Oh yeah, there, there's there's well, I mean, even then, you know, Vilnius, Vilnius, it's a funny place because it does it is important. And there's a, there's a guy named um, David Frick at Berkeley who's doing some interesting stuff. Oh yeah, David stuff. Frick. Yeah, no, I, I know uh, David. Yeah. Um, and, and there's plenty about it, sort of in more in more classical in, in, in Jewish history writing. But it's really not until the 18th and 19th century that Vilna becomes such a, such the uh-huh. center that we think I of see. it as okay. being. I mean, if you were if you were sort of looking for the great centers of rabbinic culture in, in early modern Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, it wouldn't have been Vilna that really? you'd go to. You, yeah, you go to Krakow. Uh, that makes me wrong. Uh, you know, and and, and, and places more in the in the, in the center of uh, of, of Poland. Uh-huh. So um, so then here they are wrestling with this idea, and there are all these factions wrestling with it, and they're inventing presses, they're uh, creating a literary language because I think it's important to say I'm. Pretty sure that the listeners know that uh, Yiddish was uh, not the prestige language, uh, and so right. it was kind of a fight to make it a a language of literature. I'm trying to think of an example, like, and we really don't have one in English because we don't have several different kinds of English. But in any event, it was not the prestige language, so it was kind of a it was kind of a fight to get it done. Let's move on then to, right. to 1917, when, as I said, that the lid comes off. Uh, once the uh, once the first revolution happens, what does the provisional government uh, say to these people? Do they uh, simply say, okay, now we have a kind of First Amendment and you can go do what you please? From the standpoint of Jewish culture, yes. The provisional government is simply a non-player. I mean, they just say, do what you want. And that's, that's exactly how – they don't even bother saying it. They just – you know, by April, they officially abolish all restrictions on Jews per se. But I think that has nothing to do with – I mean, from the first moment that the, that the, old, the old regime has fallen, there's just nobody – Censoring this stuff. There's uh-huh. nobody who cares, and there's no, and the lid is off. Exactly, and and, and all the cultural figures I talk about. I mean, when they, you know, they send out notes to each other, calling grand meetings, and, and they say, now, <laughs> now is the time, and, and they actually do them. They, and, they, and they produce organizations, right? But first, they send notes to call. But they say, now, now is the time when we're free to do anything we want, and all the ideas we've kicked around for the last ten or fifteen years, and you know, so for instance, one of the big differences now, not only can one publish what one wishes, but you can organize uh, 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 region-wide school systems, which the Hebraists and Yiddish proceed to do. They create hundreds of schools, uh-huh. all organized under a single body, and those kinds of bodies have been sort of unsystematically but fairly severely frustrated by Soros officials before the war. You know, um, there there had been various efforts to create, say, a, a Russia-wide Hebraist organization that would coordinate. 
uh, societies for sort of Hebrew enthusiasts and Hebrew learning, and the, and the state basically says, no, you know, it, it, as Jeff Eidelman shows, it has to do with sort of local figures too, like regional governors or the figures running the, the, the particular city. Some were more concerned with shutting this sort of stuff down than others. Some were more concerned with, say, some thought Zionism was not a threat, some thought it was because it's another kind of nationalism. That, you know, but all that stuff simply disappears. Nobody mm-hmm. is involved until, of course, the new regime gets involved, and that's yeah. the last time I book it looks at what happens when the Bolsheviks, and in the larger sense, the revolution as a kind of normative framework, become arbiters of what's appropriate in Jewish culture, which mm-hmm. I see is a very, a, a, a yet another story, and not one that should be confused with what gets expressed in this 1917 moment. Yeah, let's talk, before we move on to the Bolsheviks and their attitudes, and I do have some interesting, I, I, what I think are interesting questions, there are things I did not know about uh, the Bolshevik attitude toward Jews that I, I learned from your book, uh, but uh, in this, in this, I guess it's a nine-month period. I can never remember uh, when the provisional government was in power. Do we see a great efflorescence of of Jewish cultures and a lot of kind of battle over culture? And, and is it well documented? Yes, 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 and yes. And let me so let me only make one one further amendment to that, which is that. The book, I mean, my book is set, as you know, uh, both around Moscow, for, for which for reasons having to really the First World War becomes a kind of temporary center of Jewish cultural life, but also uh, Kiev and Odessa and that kind of complicated world of, of sort of independent, sometimes Ukraine, right? So, so in a yeah. way, I mean, if, if, you're, if you're thinking from Moscow, my, the first my book is concerns about a year, so between February and February 1918 when the Bolsheviks yeah. really start. But if, you're, but if you look to Kiev, it's about two years, right? mm-hmm. because it's not until February 1919 right. that the, the Bolsheviks control. get to yeah. Kiev. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's a, a year in Moscow, two, uh, so yes. Um, but but um, there is a huge efflorescence. This is not my insight by any means. I mean, it, it, we it, it's well known as a general sort of empirical fact that's been that that, that Jews remembered and talked about in various memoir settings that this 1917 through 1920-21 moment is a moment of tremendous Jewish cultural efflorescence. This is the moment, for instance, when you get both in Yiddish and Hebrew the first serious modernist theater, huh. uh, um, uh, the Habima theater, which goes on to become kind of Israel's. First, the Jewish issue, and then Israel's sort of, you know, uh, sim- great symbol of, of Hebrew theater is founded in <laughs> Moscow in this period. Uh, the, the Yiddishist equivalent um, is founded in Vilnius, in Vilna, in this period. Um, uh, and a variety of other less known I'm, I'm just thinking, companies, opera companies. I'm just thinking, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but I'm just thinking again of the striking, striking uh, contrast. It's kind of a natural experiment. If you take, you know, you, you, you take uh, Yiddishists and you put them in this um, sort of highbrow. I guess imperial or Russian context, and you get modernist theater. You take Yiddishists and you put them in uh, New York, uh, circa 1910, and you get vaudeville. Yeah, yeah, well, that's fair. (laughs) Although you have the same vaudeville in Warsaw. Yeah, no, I'm sure you did. I'm just thinking uh, about popular culture. But yeah, absolutely. And and of course, when these guys looked at the U.S., they thought, you know, all that that potential wealth and all that lowbrow garbage, right? That was their sort of take on the whole thing. Right. So then Um, was there uh, there a a kind of. you know, can we track a huge upsurge of, of books and, and um, of newspapers and things like, you know, pamphlets, you know, in the United States in the 19, I guess it was 20s, 30s and 40s, there was something called the little magazine period when pretty much right. everybody with any literary pretension at all was putting out little magazines and they've been collected in vast archives and they're very interesting. Was there a similar sort of thing going on in the uh, Jewish press or Jewish? Yeah. Yes, yes and, yes and no. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of effort to do so. And some things are actually published, created, achieved, painted, you know. Um, but many of these things are, are stillborn or deferred because the material conditions are so dreadful. So, so there's a tremendous efflorescence. I'd say it's largely an ideational uh, 
uh, uh, efflorescence and institutional efflorescence, uh, the, you know, if you actually sort of were asking quantitatively, what's a better time for, say, Hebrew or Yiddish literary publishing, 1917 in Moscow or 1925 in Warsaw? You say 25 in Warsaw. There's, you know, it's just the material conditions are better. They're not great. Not, you know, just, you're, no one's actually sort of at war. <laughs> so, so, so a lot of the things I look at were kind of projects that, that, have, that have some real achievements in the realm of the arts, in the realm of institutions, and leave a much uh, more robust trace in the realm of what they had planned to do. And I was, I'm as much interested in the latter as the former, because my interest is not just the cultural life of the period per se, it's the idea of Jewish culture as expressed through the various projects of, of culture building that take place, including projects that never got off the ground. But I'm just, I'm really interested in the, so, how they understand what culture is. So tell us what they plan to do. Well, I think one thing that I, I, I started to see, and I, thought, I, started, I, I, I have a chapter that I call the Constitution of, of Jewish Culture. And, and what I mean by that is, I, I, if you, if I, after looking at these closely, all these different projects, both the ones that were realized, the ones that weren't, uh, I started to see a couple things. First of all, we're not just talking about Jewish culture at a, at a distance from the actors. We're talking about people who embraced, quite, quite vocally embraced, some idea of a new Jewish culture. They had particular terms for that in Yiddish, Hebrew, Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, but, they, but they understood themselves as being engaged in a collective project, not simply that you know, there were writers who, of course, would write about Jewish things because they were Jewish and writers write about what they know. Right? So, so, they were, so first of all, this was, a, this was a, a self-consciously undertaken project. Uh, second... Uh, uh, what I try and show, and I think I found surprising, but I, but, but I think I show quite, there's a lot of material, there's a lot of evidence to support this, is that for these figures, uh, the arts, not scholarship, not ethnography, but the arts, above all, stood at the center of what a proper culture was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, um, third, they were all, almost everybody I study was, was an, an incredibly committed linguistic nationalist. Mm-hmm. It, that one of the things that's striking at this period is at a moment when Russian Jewry has never been more Russified, I mean, Russian has never been more available as a language of high culture for more and more Jews, these movements, the, the, the idea of Jewish culture is, is almost entirely dominated by figures who are either radical Hebraists or radical Yiddishists. Mm-hmm. And, and Russian, even though it's the language, they're, all, they're perfectly comfortable with the language, and you can find it in the archives, uh-huh. it is basically um, normatively sidelined as an acceptable language of Jewish culture, uh-huh. even for people for whom it's very comfortable. Uh-huh. And this is because um, every nation had to have a language? Is that, was that just their assumption that you couldn't have well, a nation in, a, kind of, in somebody that's, else's yeah, language? That's, that's certainly part of it. And at the same time, I, I think that what I try and, I mean, what I, what I, what I think I've discovered and what I try and show is that, that wasn't, it wasn't just simply a kind of a nationalist reflex, but it also had something to do with the way they understood how human culture that's, of, that's worthy is created. And they were all pretty convinced that you couldn't really have a patchwork culture based on many languages. You really needed a single language that would allow all forms and, and shades of expression. And that was the, you know, in that sense, they're, 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 they can be compared to, to debates during the Renaissance about mm-hmm. language. I mean, it's, it's not just a kind of, we read the East European nationalist playbook and, 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 and it says you've got to have your own language. I mean, there was that, too. But part of, book, part of my concern in the book is precisely to show how seriously they take what they see to be the specific claims of culture, what a culture is, how it's supposed to work, how you build one, what it can do, uh, how it should be separate from the world of one's own politics, um, how it should be allowed to be capacious and express everything, not just, you know, not just that which is ostensibly essentially 
uh, Jewish. And that's, that's another key aspect of the book. Is, I mean, there's a whole chapter devoted primarily to translation, because one of the things that you see in this period, this is not, this is not just the moment where you see the birth of sort of modern Jewish theater. This is, this is the moment when there is an obsessive, massive, uh, uh, materially rich effort by both Hebraists uh-huh. and Yiddishists to, to, trans, to kind of carry out these massive translation projects where the, the idea is that, the, the, that all of the key works of European or classical or even world literature are supposed to be now translated into good, to find good Hebrew and Yiddish translation as a kind of new basis, a refounding of those national cultural projects so that the, the new Hebrew and Yiddish cultures to be created won't be narrow. They won't be right. parochially Jewish. Right. But on the contrary, they'll be as just as capacious as Russian or German or French or English culture. That's the, that's the, the rhetoric, and, and they really do try and act on that rhetoric. Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, that was a sensible ploy, I think, and actually it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a terribly uncommon one among uh, smallish, let's put it that way, uh, literatures to, 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 to attempt to kind of take possession of uh, what are thought to be the classics. Uh, one of the things I really liked about y- your book uh, is um, the connection you make between this focus on the arts as the center of culture and um, European Romanticism, um, because I know that when I uh, – Romanticism is one of my favorite things to lecture about because it's actually world historically kind of an odd thing, and we're drenched in it now. Um, yeah. But maybe you could make that connection for the listeners. Well, I actually – maybe I'm, I might invite you to make the connection. I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I have a good coherent account of that connection. I guess I would say something like this, that on the one hand, they're certainly you – know, they certainly have what you could call a romantic model of – of the of the of, a romantic exaltation of the arts, kind of certainly a post-classical exaltation of the arts, and a romantic model of the kind of capacious, creative individual self. Um, um, that 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 what what one ultimately wants from culture, and what one ultimately can hope for in a post-religious modernity, because these guys tend to be fairly post-religious, secular in some way, is is the creative uh, 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 plenitude of individuality, and that yes. I think you know that's that's something bequeathed by romanticism, no yep. no question. The, the, the flip side is, I guess, having said that they're not, you know, that, that this, these are definitely post neoclassical sensibilities of romantic sensibilities. On the other hand, I think what what I found kind of astonishing about my figures is that one of the other faces of romanticism that we would normally associate with cultural nationalism, perhaps above all, is what is often perhaps unfairly called the Herderian idea that you know um, that that general uh, shared modern technical civilization is bad, and that what we want as a kind of reaction to it is some sort of um, um, essential recovery of the kind of collective vitality uh, located at some ur level of the nation, of the national mm-hmm. consciousness. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and on the one hand, those ideas are certainly never absent in Jewish nationalism. But, but what I saw, you know, for instance, in obsession with translation and, 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 the, and the ideological motives attached to it is something of a pushback against that within this Jewish nationalist movement. That is, they, they do have a kind of almost self-consciously mechanical notion of what a modern culture is supposed to be. And I joked before about taking out taking their, their attitude or language from the Roman, from the uh, nationalist playbook, but they do actually have a sense <laughs> of, a, of a cultural playbook. You know, they, 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 they have this sense that for all the romantic effusions about uniqueness, what culture means is that, that ability to be uh, a fully expressive modern, and not just expressive of your differ- of your difference, but expressive of anything. And I don't I don't necessarily associate that with romanticism. I, they, yeah. You know, they they're looking back. They look and, and they say quite explicitly, let's take the models of Russian and German culture, both of course framed in that, that romantic moment. How did the and they basically say something like this? And I don't mean any offense to people who love uh, pre-modern Russian or German culture. But they say 
these were nothing languages and nothing cultures before mm-hmm. the turn of the 19th century. Right. You know, German, you know, Germans, okay, they had Luther's translation of the Bible. What was German other than that? It was nothing. You know, you know French was the language of culture. What did the German, how did the Germans turn their nothing culture into this amazing world historical culture in 50, 60 years? It wasn't just through romantic uniqueness. It was precisely through translation. It was through, you know, Sitting down and saying, "How the heck do we get Shakespeare into German?" Yep. Right? And they say, and then my figures also, and, this, and the Russians did exactly the same thing twenty years later, thirty mm-hmm. years later, and they looked at the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties, yep. that, that that moment of tremendous translation and and and, and kind of plenitude of you know, the, the translation of Russian literature, and so so they have a kind of mechanical idea of culture wedded to a romantic idea of art. I guess mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's um, that's that's absolutely a terrific answer. Um, the, the thing that fascinates me is the degree to which the frame of reference for these people and for many nationalists in the or culture builders in the 19th century, the frame of reference was uh, really forward-looking. They, they weren't terribly conservative in the sense that they uh, didn't, um, as they did in the Renaissance and in the classical period, idolize the, the Greeks and the Romans and thus That's and such. They, they really were thinking about something springing out of their own soul that would be an evocation of their own modern identity. Uh, and, and that always really fascinates me, again, because I, I think that American culture is just drenched in this. We, we love creativity. We, 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 we are not very, and I think this is true of world culture in general, we are always forward-looking. We want the next thing, yeah. and we want it to reflect our true feelings, whatever those might be. That is what we think of as great art. The great art is yet to be created. It, mm-hmm. it hasn't been created yet. And I think that these people in that forward-looking aspect were, were really very modern and, very, and, and, and really quite, quite a bit like us. I want to, I wanna, um, since we're, uh, this is really fascinating, uh, but um, we are, uh, I won't say we're running out of time, but I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to ask you an odd question um, because I'm about to read a biography of a fellow who was born with the name, I believe it was Lieber Bronstein. You may be familiar uh-huh. with him. Uh, uh, yeah, he, I've heard of this fellow. Yeah, this guy. He became Leon Trotsky. Yeah. Uh, what, what would he have thought? What did, do we know anything about what he and the Bolshevik – I mean, he you know, was raised in, the, in this kind of – I really know anything. I haven't read the biography yet, so I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe the guy was raised completely a-religiously and outside this context. But uh, what would he and other similarly-minded, I guess I would call them Jewish or ex-Jewish? I don't know what to call them. Intellectuals think about this, just as a kind of segue into what the Bolsheviks do. That's a great question. Let me know. I, I take it you're about to read services. Yeah, that's exactly right. I've only read reviews. The one thing I would say right off the bat is – to attribute to Trotsky's sort of Talmudical reasoning is a little bit historically strange because the guy had never seen a volume of Talmud. Yeah, no, I can't imagine that was true. <laughs> um, and, that, and that's a key. I mean, you know, Trotsky, Trotsky, Trotsky is a peculiar background because, I, if I'm not mistaken, he comes from the world of Jewish uh, agriculturalists in in New Russia. There were yep. various fitful efforts throughout the 19th century to sort of resettle Jews in the land, and the, the state would grant them some farmland. And so he comes out of a world where he was he was intensely Russified, and his relation to to Whatever Jewishness was 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 I think you know quite um, um, cold and analytical from the first, mm-hmm. but for better or for worse, and there were there were many people like that, and, and um, almost all of the Bolshevik leaders of Jewish background fit that bill. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the when the Bolsheviks actually try and get in, they want to kind of take control of Jewish culture, like just you know because they want to take control of everything. Um, <laughs> they have to look long and hard to find an old Bolshevik who actually knows Yiddish or Hebrew. Is that right? By one guy, that's guy really interesting. Yeah, that's really he's, interesting. Complete, he's completely unique. I mean, there's been some recent work that's confused him with someone typical, 
But, but basically, for, for, for the, for one of the reasons the Bolsheviks are so so slow to get control of Jewish culture, first of all, that's obviously not nearly as important as winning. The war. So, Tr- so Trotsky, so Trotsky, and these guys didn't know uh, they didn't know Yiddish. Trotsky may have no no Trotsky. I think Trotsky knew Yiddish. Um, huh. A lot of these other guys, uh, Kamenev, Kamenev, I think a lot of them had, had just no idea. Um, huh. But but Trotsky, I think you know Trotsky knew the Jewish world well enough that I, I'm not mistaken from talking to Tony, he did very good a, a good job of raising funds for the Mensheviks, you know, uh, in, in in New York, and he uh-huh. must have been doing that in in Yiddish as much as Russian. Yeah. But, but his but he never has a flirtation with the nationalists. As I understand Trotsky. He's simply you know. And his notion of that the Jews are going to have a separate culture, or that they, or even worse, they should have a separate and a separatist politics, even within the world of the Russian socialist movement, even with the SD movement, is you know, just anathema. And and, uh-huh. um, and why do they think this? Why do they think this? And I'm also thinking, I don't know if I can associate with kind of other Jewish left wing causes. One that comes to mind is the Bund, uh, which is right. which is you know quite large and, and, and a political force. I'm just kind of asking what uh, uh, you know what. Jews on the left, and there were a considerable number of them, and they were well organized. What they thought about this attempt to create a, a Jewish culture, and how is that reflected in what the Bolsheviks do when they come to power? Right. Well, let, no, let me note that a fair number of figures I study are on the left, and, and many of them are Bundists. I mean, not many, but there there were there three, by some counts, four Jewish socialist nationalist parties, including the Bund, that sometime around the turn of the century or 1905 uh, combined some notion of a of There'll be stained Jewish particularity, particularly linguistic and cultural, within some socialist revolutionary uh, uh, society mm-hmm. to be created on the uh, and in the space currently occupied by the Tsarist regime and and, uh, and uh, you know mixed feudalism and capitalism, however they however <laughs> they saw it. Um, and, and so many of the figures I study are also, in some sense, committed to, to the revolution. At the same time, these other figures like Trotsky, and like most of those, who, most of those of Jewish descent have been the Mensheviks, the Bolsheviks, many SRs as well, who have no will have no truck with any such notion of a of national self determination, because they see it as just retrograde. I mean, what is it? Why would you? You know, if if the natural course of um, uh, of, of socioeconomic development is toward um, the breakdown of older traditions and minor languages. Why w- it can only be retrograde to insist on the artificial uh, maintenance and, 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 and of, a, of a separate Jewish culture? And even worse, it means cooperating with the Jewish bourgeoisie. That's basically the you know that would be the line that Lenin would take in his in his, um, in his polemics with the Bund. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you why, why would you want to foster separatism among Jewish workers? Uh, on the contrary, let them Russify and become Russian, and then that's mm-hmm. great. And then it'll be just Russian workers. We don't need to worry about this extra problem. All that said, um, as as you know, um, uh, people like uh, like uh, Francine Hirsch and, uh, and Yuri Slotskin and, and and many other and Richard Pipes actually note um, the Bolsheviks for a variety of reasons that we could debate. Some essentially tactical, others maybe you know principled. End up. With this notion that whatever their general um, dislike of nationalism and national separation, there 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 is at least some room for compensatory national cultural formation and sort of sustaining national cultures within the world of the within, within a new revolutionary society. Um, so it'll be national. Lenin's line is it's national in uh, form but socialist in content or something, right? So so. Although, in principle, the Bolsheviks, it, actually because they've been politicizing with the Bund, it's a kind of strange, in principle, the Bolsheviks have, have by 1917, rejected the notion Jews are people. So, in principle, Jews are excluded from that category. They're not like Kalmyks or Poles, right? But in practice, 
the Bolsheviks basically end up by 1918-1919 saying, no, you know what? In practice, we're going to treat the Jews the same way. They'll come under the uh, the, um, the commissariat of for nationality affairs under Stalin. They'll be given state money for appropriate forms of schooling and culture in their language, whatever that is. And they decide it's Yiddish, so it's going to be Yiddish. Um, um, and there'll be you know there'll be a space in the new Soviet society for a separate, albeit of course properly revolutionary and state-controlled um, Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, 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 and in that context, there's a place for the Yiddishists, particularly, to make common cause with the regime. And many do. Others don't. But many, both because it's increasingly moving toward revolutionary left ideologically, in some cases because of the practical attractions of this. And here's a state that's suddenly going to fund Yiddish culture, a stateless culture. There's, there's, tremendous, there's tremendous attraction to this, this early dispensation on the part of the, what's first the, the Yevcom and then the Yevsektia, mm-hmm. these organizations set up by the, by the regime one associate of the state, one associate of the party, to oversee uh, the incorporation of the Jewish street into the revolutionary order, mm-hmm. suppress the stuff that's not acceptable, it's true that Zionism, Hebrew, and any form of religion, but, um, and, and at the same time to sponsor and frame a, a socialistically appropriate Jewish uh, Soviet culture. Yeah, you just had a mouthful there, though. I mean, if you uh, squash or squelch the uh, Hebraist and the Zionist elements in this cultural efflorescence that you've talked about uh, in, after the revolution, that's a lo- that's a major part of the kind of culture building <laughs> effort. Those people that was, they were they were serious, and so what happened yeah. to them? Uh, a lot of them leave. I mean, that's that's the you know the natural endpoint of the book in some ways is twenty one in part because half half the characters leave. Uh, they, the Hebraists, I mean, some stay, some stay for personal reasons, some stay because despite it all, they've become believers, but the vast majority of Hebraists of any sort are also Zionists, and although many are are sort of sympathetic to socialism in some broad sense, uh, they, they're, they're absolutely not willing to stay in a, in a, in a, in a, in a state that won't allow them any kind of uh, expression, so they leave. Most of them leave intending to go to Palestine. Most of them eventually end up in Palestine. Some do so by way of Berlin. There's a strange moment when Berlin becomes a center of Hebrew and also Yiddish culture in, say, 21 to 24. But then ultimately, by, say, 26, the Hebrew culture is firmly re-centered in Palestine. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's basically and, – and, and thereafter, by, by the end of the late, by the late 20s, you know, there were interesting Hebrew writers abroad. There's some in Poland. There's some in Germany. But, but most of the figures who had made the Russian Empire the natural center of Hebrew culture have sort of put their principles into practice, their Zionists and gone to Palestine. Uh-huh. And, and this, is, this is kind of grist for the Bolshevik mill, though, when these people go there. And then they're, of course, imperialist Zionists, and uh, that, that's – that's more proof that the Bolsheviks, according to their own lights, were right about these people, that they were retrograde uh, um, uh, imperialists. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of reminded uh, – this thing about Berlin sounds really interesting to me, but I'm also reminded of something that I've noticed a long time ago. If you meet uh, Russian Jewish immigrants in the United States who came in the 70s, mm-hmm. they, they all came through Italy. Do you, you know this connection? It's a strange thing. I don't know. It's a yeah. For some reason, they came through Italy. I, mean, I know many of them. So there's this one moment where Italy was the place that you went. You went to Italy. You went from Soviet Union to Italy, and then you went to either uh, no, Israel or you went to New right, York. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. It's a, it's a peculiar thing, and and I, I've uh, I've always wondered if anybody is going to write a little something about that. And I, and I don't really know the connection very well. But it was in the 70s when they were they were going. And this business about Berlin just reminded me of it. So what happened to um. 
So how did this accommodation, or I want to say Gleichschaltung, the, how did this? Yeah, that's, that's the one yeah, I want to say too. I agree. Yeah, right. I, don't, I, don't, I kind of want to stay away from that. But how did how did this incorporation of these uh, uh, secular Yiddishist or whatever one might call it, this sort of culture, how did it uh, how did it um, how, how did it proceed? How, how was it? Uh, it what, did the efflorescence continue? Let's put it that way. Well, that's that's I suppose. I mean, the last two, so roughly the last third of the book is concerned with that question. And um, the fact that I end in 21 already tells you that I think that the efflorescence does not continue in nearly the same way. And, and the, the, I guess, I, I mean, I suppose the last part of the book is the most historiographically uh, engaged or uh, aggressive or something, in a sense that um, I think there's been a lot of very interesting, there's been a lot of newfound interest in, let's say, the Soviet Jewish 1920s in the last 10 or 15 years. The company you know, basically had very little, and now there's a, a, a Maybe a half dozen monographs, one way or the other, about Jewish life in the Soviet Union in the 20s and 30s, especially the 20s. And a lot of that work emphasizes the continuity. It tends to want to say, look, a lot of what um, what we see in the 20s is a fairly free development of Jewish life in the sense that the state has has sort of set up this framework in which there are going to be Yiddish schools and Yiddish writers can write and they get state funding. Uh, and, and it's really only in the 30s that when you know that all these institutions are destroyed. And that's true at an institutional level. I, I, I tend, I mean, I, I strongly believe that that said, that strongly underplays the importance of the revolution as a thing from the Soviet state. Um, and I already in 1919, 1920, I see a lot of the figures I'm studying recasting their whole understanding of Jewish culture and certainly the contents of it. Not 100 percent, but but quite dramatically, in terms of what they understand to be the dictates of a properly revolutionary culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Jewish culture that flourishes in the Soviet Union in a kind of institutional sense in the 1920s is, to, to my reading, and here I know that people in my field have strongly disagree with this view. Uh, one of the first reviews strongly disagrees with this view. Really, is so shaped by the general sense that one has to be a revolutionary and write in an appropriate fashion for the revolutionary society coming into being, that it's, it's, it may share the language uh, of, the, of the stuff I've looked at in 1917. It may share some of the same dramatis personae. Uh, uh, it may say that it's continuous with it in some way, but it really is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 that, and that, so Gleichschaltung is, a, you know, it's not just, it's not that the Bolsheviks come in and say, now we're going to tell you what goes on. And no, the Bolsheviks basically, here I like Katerina Clark's notion of ecology. The Bolsheviks reset the ecology. They say, here's the stuff we're not going to accept. Within this framework, you know, you tell us what you want to do, what you want to publish, you write what you want to write, you guys set up your journals. But what, but what that purely institutional account leaves out is what it means for these figures to also understand, I think the much more important, essentially religious fact, that they are now in a new world, a new order coming into being, and everybody is called upon to be faithful, a faithful servant of that, of that, you know, that, that, that birthing process, mm-hmm. and to midwife the process. And so they, they engage in their own dry shelter, and it's not so much that, yeah. that Trotsky, Trotsky doesn't care what these guys are doing. What does he care that these, that these Yiddishists are writing? It's the Yiddish, it's some of the Yiddish themselves start policing the others. You know, they adopt the kind of, they, they, they embrace the revolution, they convert, as it were, fully, uh, and then they start, you know, saying things like the role of the literary critic in the new Yiddish culture is to make sure Yiddish writers are creating positive heroes. Yeah, yeah, no, that I, kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. I mean, people want to find 
resistance everywhere um, where there's an absence of it. Uh, And they make, you know, resistance makes for historic or or for heroic stories. And that's all well and good. But, you know, much of history is about accommodation with the way things are, not the way that you uh, want to. You know, it's funny because I was talking to my students just yesterday about uh, resistance in the face of certain death. And, uh, I mean, it's a well-established fact that most people, when they're about to go to their death, do not resist. They yeah, become they very just, passive. They're, they're passive <laughs> yeah. and, and this may seem paradoxical from our perspective, but I think from theirs it does not. Um, right. And, you know, these kinds of accommodations, it's funny. I was – it's funny. well, I'll tell this anecdote in a second. But I wanted to ask about uh, another kind of peculiar thing. You know, again, we're sort of running out of time, and I, uh, but I want to get to a couple more things if you have another sure, second. Sure. One is – and think more broadly about this, that um, – how does this? How does this story? And we're going to take it past uh, 1920. How does this story of the Hebraists leaving and going to Palestine, and the Yiddishists staying, and then working in the Soviet Union and in Poland and elsewhere? Uh, how does this bear on modern Israeli culture? Because it seems as if, kind of by accident, you know, one side—I mean, by horrible accident—one side was given possession. You know, one side was kind of you know they they sort of picked the torch up off the ground, and now they. I mean, Yiddish is dead in Israel, isn't it? I, yeah, it's wrong? not dead. I, I mean, it's, but, it's, it's, but it's certainly not, there's nothing comparable to what it would. I mean, I mean, you know, from a sociolinguistic standpoint, Yiddish is not dead in Israel. It's arguably growing, but that's only in the ultra-Orthodox community. And, uh-huh. and that's a community that, broadly speaking, again, if you look closely enough, there's complexities, but broadly speaking, will have nothing to do with any of these notions of culture because they're, they're anathema. I mean, right. for them, Yiddish is part and parcel of a larger effort to separate themselves from the larger society, be it American, as it were, Gentile society, yeah. and also Israeli secular society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so, so Yiddish, I mean, as a language, is actually in better shape now than it was a generation ago, uh-huh. for purely demographic uh, reasons, but has, that has nothing to do with Yiddish. I mean, I, I myself am personally engaged in and, and sort of a happy consumer of what is still a fairly interesting Yiddish language culture, but it's yeah. nothing, I mean, it's nothing compared to what it was, of course, in, 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 when you had that kind of demographic weight. I, I, guess the, I guess the thing I'm trying to drive at here is yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of ironic that, that um, you know, the Israeli culture is a culture in Hebrew now. Uh, it's sort of, right. the, it's, it's, that's, the, that's the national emphasis, and that this other bud, this other branch of... Um, I guess you might call it Jewish culture building was was destroyed not only by right. the Soviets but by the Holocaust and and right. and then the, the jig was really up and I you know I, yeah. I'm sure that there are books about the, the survival of Yiddishism after uh, the Holocaust or if they're not there should be because I think it'd be a fascinating uh, story but no but your general outline is absolutely correct no yeah, of course the, I mean it, it's it, it, it's it's Israel's Hebrew culture. One way or the other, that is the only robust living inheritor of this yeah. cultural idea. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and do you think that yeah. the vision of these people, you know, sort of formed after the February Revolution, is it is it realized in some sort? Would they be happy with what they see in Israel? And this is kind of a ridiculous question, but you know, no. It's a, I mean, actually, the, I mean, that's my my conclusion. Yeah. Where I allow myself to get a bit speculative. It's exactly. I mean, it really is framed by that question. And I think I would say, yeah, a lot of them would be. I mean, that's not you know, obviously. Uh, one of the favorite sports of anybody who studies Israel is to find all the many flaws with that society. Um, and, and who am I to, you know, who am I to, to, to rein on that place? Yeah. But, but I mean, certainly whatever is going on in Israeli life and whatever tensions play out in the realm of culture, you know, in a very practical sense, as I point out in the conclusion, here's a place where 
people speak Hebrew not because of any ideological mobilization or because they're told to, but because it's like, you, know, you, need, you wake up in the morning, you right. need the language for everyday life, you need the language to make a living, and it turns out, and, and, the, and the state supports that, and it turns out that is actually what makes sustains the language. Um, and, and as sort of... Uh, but by the way, as a matter of course, people also create a culture in the language, yep. and some of them worry about if it's Jewish or not, and some of them don't. I mean, you can and, and, and they create what they create. The, the artists paint, and the sculptors sculpt, and the movie makers make either junk or good films. You know, and, and, and it's, it happens by itself, um, and it's and, and, and it's tremendously capacious in the sense of what kind of topics can go into it. So much so that I think American Jews find it a little bit. Um, Dizzying because it's not. I mean, the categories we might come to it with, you know, as, as Jews, not as you know, like, is it Jewish? Are kind of stupid categories. <laughs> you know, you ask an Israeli and they just look at you like, what do you That's mean? That's funny. I'm, trying, like, I'm, I'm thinking of like a, a game show. Is it Jewish? Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, is, is this movie Jewish? I don't know. It's about some Jewish people living in Tel Aviv, you know, but, it's, but why would you ask? So, an Israeli, so an Israeli secularist response would be, what? I don't really know what that it's means. It's like that Saturday Night Live skit, You Spot the Jew. You know, that's... Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. William Chatner. Is it Jewish? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right, so that's, 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 that's like peculiarly... I mean, of course, Israelis also obsessed with sort of the ethnic derivation thing. But don't get me wrong, but... But this idea that, that every cultural product has to be, you sort of take it and you say, well, in what sense is this Jewish? Like, is Philip Roth a Jewish writer or an American writer writing? It's, it's a meaningless question when the text is asked about a Hebrew text. It's a Hebrew yeah. text. Right? In that sense, it, it, it's absolutely the realization of this. And I, I mean, as I try and say, I think the Yiddishists I studied didn't quite understand the importance of a state. I mean, leave aside all the political questions, why is this important? Politically? But, you know, it, it, the difference was, first of all, that Yiddish was wiped out, but, but already in interwar Poland, Yiddish, although there's a real efflorescence, a lot of great Yiddish cultures created, and it's, there's already tremendous linguistic assimilation in Polish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and by the 30s, people in Poland are saying, you know, Yiddish culture is going to die. It turns out it yep. doesn't until it's destroyed. Yeah, but, right. but it really had to do with territorialization, yeah. with having an economy. That's what, you know, makes a language... Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I again, it. you have a kind of natural experiment that sort of shows that, and that is there's a, you know, the, the, a very large Jewish community in New York by, uh, you know, 1915 or so, and um, it spread out through all over the United States, you know, so that I could, my best friend could be, one of my best friends could be Rob Cohen in Kansas. And, but, right. you know, by the 40s or 50s, that, 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 um, that these were, you know, Yiddish was, I won't say it was gone, but in places where these Jews had yes. gone out the United States, Yiddish was basically gone. They spoke English natively, obviously. I'm Rob Cohen. You right. know, he spoke English natively like I do. And, uh, and and uh, but in you know again in, in in Israel where there was a real sort of effort to, to create a Hebrew culture there there it survived but this this sort of I reminded of this anecdote I have to tell it it was a <laughs> I went to go uh, I, I must have been like a freshman or sophomore and I knew a, a woman pretty well uh, her name was Debbie Malinish a very brilliant person and uh, she was going to go to college to me and she said why don't you come to Skokie with me I'd never been hmm. to Chicago to Skokie that sounds really interesting Skokie I'll go to Skokie and I go to her house and. Um, and they're uh, of the Jewish tradition. Let's put it that way. And I remember I was, saw, uh, I was sitting there. I was kind of waiting. I don't know. Her mom was doing something, uh, making us dinner or something. And I, and I was looking at a magazine. And on the cover, there was a uh, – uh, it was called like Jewish World or something. Right. And on the cover of the magazine, the, the sort of the big story was the dangers of assimilation. I remember like, I, I couldn't really understand it. What do they mean assimilation exactly? I, you know, really, assimilation of what? Yeah, yeah what? We're all like here and we're doing the American thing. And we're about to have bean weenies and, you know, <laughs> and Skokie. And yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. But the point is, is this natural experiment that, that you know, you, the, 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 you know, that, that assimilationist tendency sort of it, it went full throttle in the United States. And now you have this, 
I mean, but it's interesting because, you know, people, <laughs> again, the ironies are so rich. You know, you're Amer- a lot of American Jews will say, well, I'm culturally Jewish. Whatever right. that means. You know, again, right. I, what does that mean exactly? Would, you know, is it, would, a, would, any, would any Hebrew-speaking Israeli say I'm culturally Jewish? I don't what, what could that mean exactly? I, I well, just, I, don't want to, you know, I don't want to flatten out Israeli. So, yeah, I mean, the, the question of Jewishness is by no means dead in Israel. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite live, but it has a different, it has a different set of givens. And, and here, what's, yeah, here, to say you're culturally Jewish, I think, already means that you are going to, this is not necessarily a bad thing, that you have to think about what you mean. Yeah. That is, there's no, you know, it's, it's not at all given what that means. And yeah. I think people who say it tend, that's usually, that's, that usually prefaces an in what can be many, in many cases, very attractive, uh, but certainly not, you know, that's a, 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 or maybe artificial, depending on it, but an effort to delineate certain, it might be certain sort of norms, it might be certain kinds of texts, it might be a canon, it might be, you know, certain kinds of ethnic folkways, half invented, half remembered, that, that, that you know, are Jewish in, in some kind of complex dialogue with or contradistinction to their, the givenness of their Americanness, yeah, right? No, uh, you know, they, yeah. it's, a, it's it's subcultural in, in a way that can be. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm I'm part of that. I mean, I don't. You know, I wrote this book in English, and uh, and, and uh, <laughs> with, with the hopes that it would make that would ha- have some leaders, you know, in the Jewish community as well as the academic community. And, and so, so I'm not. I don't mean to be critical of it, but I do. As I said, I try and show my conclusion. It's it's a very different kind of thing than what the people I'm studying, both Yiddish and Hebraists, were reaching for. And it's the kind of thing they really didn't like. Yeah. There are already equivalents to it in Russia. I mean, by, by 1917, there was a Russian language, Jewishly marked Jewish culture, uh-huh. right? And leave aside Mandelstam and Patagio. But, you know, you could get translations of the Bible, the, you know, the Hebrew Bible in Russian, and you could buy right. journals, you know, Yevreskaya uh, Semyao, um, these journals right. are sort of, you know, middle-brow journals for families that wanted to nurture some kind of Jewishness, but we're already Russian. And yeah. it was a given. So, and, and, you know, and, and what's in them? Well, there's, there's discussions of concerns of the Jewish community. There's literature around Jewish themes, mm-hmm. you know, that, or, or that, have, that has Jewish characters, you know, and some of it's good literature, some of it's not, right? Uh, um, yeah. um, um, uh, but, but, but it's that, and that's already much more parallel to what you're talking about. Yeah. A world in which you have a variety of people who think of themselves as Jews, however much they are fully integrated into the mainstream shared national language and culture, and for whom that requires a certain kind of set of very active, conscious efforts at cultivating some realm of Jewish difference that they want to stake out and and preserve. It might be religion, right, and it tends to be very much organized on synagogues in the U.S., and has something to do with sort of the place of religion in American life in the post-war world. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, no, it's, it's, I, I find it, you know, extraordinarily interesting. I mean, the, 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 the amount of thought about uh, one's identity, and particularly, I guess I'd say national or religious identity, um, the amount of really interesting thought that, that came out of this renaissance and kind of continues uh, in these discussions of what it means to be Jewish, but it could be Armenian as well, I think, or it could yeah, be a lot yeah. of things. Uh, I, I find it very—it's uh, a very fruitful topic for the modern world, and I, it, it's um, 
it's yeah, it's just very. I, I find it just endlessly fascinating, to be honest with you. So anyway, we've taken up a huge amount of your time, Ken, and I could talk about this for another hour uh, and exchange all of the sort of anecdotes that I have about uh, various <laughs> different <laughs> – because you know, the thing about it is like – well, I won't go into it. We can go talk about it later after the interview. But the uh, 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 let, let me ask you our final uh, – traditional final question on new books in history, and that is uh, what are you working on now? What's your next project? Well, I'm I'm leaving behind uh, culture uh, at least for a while, uh, and uh, I mean you can't leave it behind anthropologically. But I'm leaving behind as a topic unto itself. I'm leaving behind uh, the Russian Empire for a little while, I think. And I'm I'm now I have a book project that I'm developing that I'm going to probably call the Unchosen People, which is <laughs> which is uh, which is which is <laughs> which is about becoming a becoming a minority, a national minority in interwar Eastern Europe, and specifically non-Soviet Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's really it's about you know um, the moment when the Jews, particularly of Poland, of interwar Poland, it was, it's, just, it's two things. It's how it's, it's how Jews of the interwar East European world make make sense of and struggle to find a place in a, a, a social and political world defined increasingly by other people's nationalism, yeah. as well as their own. I mean, so so uh, this is the moment, of course, you know, outside of the Soviet system, uh, it's, the, it's the moment of the League of Nations and yeah. the, 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 it's the moment of the new nation states, um, many of them run by, you know, parties intensely committed to nationalizing the economy, yep. to nationalizing uh, cultural life. In which Jews are both citizens and a kind of, uh, sort of one of many, but also an especially problematic, mm-hmm. or to a problematic minority. Uh, there, there are too many in the middle class. There are mm-hmm. too many in the cities. And so, in this, and, and at the same time, this is the, the interwar period is the moment when when Zionism goes from being a kind of powerful dream to being a precarious but real mm-hmm. fact. You know, as 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 in British Mandatory Palestine, you get a kind of much more robust uh, 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 Jewish issue. So. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, uh, making claims, of course, in the name of the Jewish nation uh, that also resonate in East European Jewry. So, w- what I'm trying to do in this project is not to ask about the history of Jewish nationalism, which I think has been well researched, but to take a step back and say, how do all of these Jews, who, as you put it, are at each other's throats about all, they, you know, what do they have in common with each other? As Kafka said, I don't have anything in common with myself. You know, they, they, speak <laughs> they speak different languages. They, uh, you know, they, some are Orthodox, some are secular. Some couldn't be bothered. Some want to be Poles. You know, whatever it is, they're all to varying degrees, forced to come to terms with the fact that whatever they may want, you know, they're now a national minority. Uh, and, and the horizon of their future, unless they're utopian socialists, is nationhood in some way. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so that's, it's, it's about the sociocultural history of how Jews come to terms with that. So I look for instance at tourism. What is Jewish tourism in Eastern Europe in the interwar period? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, at a moment when tourism means getting to know your land, right? right. Um, and, and then it's an intellectual history of a variety of figures who, wouldn't be that comfortable with the label nationalist, mm-hmm. um, but who are um, not so committed to a kind of completely um, uh, uh, self-referential alternative socialist or orthodox vision that they actually are trying to come to terms with what their political identity is going to be in this new world of, of nationhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another dimension of it is to look, it's a, in some ways, also a history of the relations between Polish Jewry and the Jews of Palestine mm-hmm. uh, in the interwar period. So that's the two lobes of the project mm-hmm. around this problem of, of be, being becoming a national minority and then trying to make sense of that politically mm-hmm. uh, well, uh, I mean, and in everyday life. I hope that uh, I wish you luck on the project. I'm sure that you will finish it to great aplomb, and I hope that when you're done with it, you will come on the show and we can talk about uh-huh. it too. I would love to. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It was certainly my pleasure. Let me uh, tell our listeners that we've had Ken Moss on the show today, and we've been talking and talking very interestingly about his uh, terrific new book, 
Jewish Renaissance and the Russian Revolution, uh, which is about many, many things beyond the Russian Revolution. I will tell readers that you should uh, definitely pick this up. It was good. I'm sure that it will be translated into Hebrew. Maybe it'll be translated into so. Yiddish. What about that? But that, I'd have to do that myself. No, I think. But, uh, that really, that sounds very maybe, hard. Maybe Russian. <laughs> yeah, maybe Russian. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, anyway, Ken, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Marshall. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Kenneth Moss about his new book, Jewish Renaissance and the Russian Revolution. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>